All right, fun story today. Jesus is going to cleanse the temple. What a fun, fun time that would have been. That is something I wish I could have witnessed, the look on people's faces as they fled for their lives. So, Well, why don't you stand up, we'll read the text, and we'll pray together. With so few announcements, I'm going to have to get used to that with my teaching. All right, Matthew 21, verse 12, I'll read through 17. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out to the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Lord Jesus, we love you, Lord, we're grateful for your example, Lord, your zeal, your manliness. Lord, you are the example of godly manhood. And I pray that uh, your example would, would just really dawn upon us today, especially for men and for women looking for men, a world that is in desperate need of men. And uh, so teach us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And pray for me. I have a wedding at three outside. And, oh, wow, that was a response. <laughs> and I, I kept telling him, I said, you know, I, I have special powers that I could make the church available to you. <laughs> and, uh, but they found this really beautiful spot. It's old growth forest. The canopy is crazy high. And they were just determined. So it, the last I checked, the forecast is supposed to clear up, but we're going to see. So I, I volunteered myself to wear a sports jacket just because it'll be cold. Yeah, otherwise, I ain't wearing that jacket. So, All right, well, let's look at this passage. Um, yeah, what a fun passage. Let's read it again. Then Jesus went into the temple. <clears throat> now he's in the court of the Gentiles inside the temple precinct, temple of God, and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written. Now I imagine in my mind that as they're running from him, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it den of thieves. Now get out. <laughs> yeah. Now this is actually the second time that Jesus came to the court of the Gentiles. Uh, there on the, the temple precinct and he's interrupted this uh, corrupt practice that is going on there. But before we look at uh, the story itself, let's, I want to correct a misunderstanding that has uh, been passed down to many of us uh, from church tradition and some other things. 
Um, you've probably heard me teach on this or mention it before, but I think it's worth readdressing. First thing, there was actually nothing wrong with buying and selling and, or exchanging money in the court of the Gentiles. God had actually given instruction in the law of Moses for those that were living you know, uh, in distant lands or far away from Jerusalem, that they could uh, come to Jerusalem and purchase the animals that they needed for sacrifice, okay? Uh, you could imagine perhaps being a Jew, uh, of course, three times a year, uh, the men had to return to Jerusalem for the feasts, and uh, there they would offer their sacrifices and, and things like that, but imagine living perhaps in Turkey or Greece or Rome uh, and trying to bring all of your animals for sacrifice from there. That would be difficult, wouldn't it? And all animals had to be without blemish, and so you'd have to be very careful with them the whole time. Well, God said, just relax, save your money. When you get to Jerusalem, you can purchase those animals for sacrifice. You get it, right? Yeah. So many Jews, that's exactly what they did. They bought their animals when they arrived in the holy city. And if they were buying, someone needed to be selling, right? It needed to be happening. Also, if pagan currency, so the Roman coins, uh, they were not allowed to be placed in the treasury at the temple. And so the Jews would have to come and they would have to exchange the Roman coins for the Israeli shekel. You get it? Because only shekels uh, could go into the treasury there in the court of the women. Uh, second, some have used this story in the Gospels to condemn the selling of books and other merchandise in the church building itself. Now the reason they do that, uh, without getting too deep into some of the history there, is because they see the church building as the New Testament temple. The auditorium as the sanctuary, the stage as the altar. But understand, all of that is biblically incorrect, completely incorrect. The church building is nothing but a building. And the auditorium is just an auditorium, and there's no altars in this building, there's just the stage that I'm standing on. And how weird would it be for a priest to stand on the altar anyway? Okay, very strange, okay? Uh, we, of course, we've dedicated this building uh, for our corporate gatherings, for worship, for the equipping of the saints, for ministry, a whole host of other things. Um, but this building, biblically, is not a church. It's the building where the church meets. Amen? We understand that? Okay, in the Bible, the word church is never, ever used of a building. Okay, ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church, means to be called out. And the building is not called out. Okay, that's talking about those who have been called out of the world and we've gathered as the community of Christ. So the church, the word church, always, without exception, refers to believers in Christ. In fact, Paul greeted the church that met in Priscilla and Aquila's house. Their house was the building where the church met, Romans 16, five. In the New Testament, the temple of God refers to two things. The body of Christ, which is all believers collectively, that's 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, <clears throat> and it refers to every believer's body individually, that's 1 Corinthians 6, 19. So the first reference in, in Corinthians, it's speaking of the, the community of Christ as a whole. 
The second reference in 1 Corinthians 6 is of the individual believer's body. So the condemnation of buying and selling in this building is based upon false information, a boatload of bad tradition that has zero biblical basis. All right? If that's new to you and you would like to discuss it more after church, I would love to talk with you about it. Yeah. So if we have guest speakers who come and they uh, want to promote and sell their books and merch here, please don't be offended. Okay, there's, 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 I want to release your conscience uh, from that, that false idea. Okay, it's okay for them to do that. It's okay. All right, let's go to the story itself. This is so great. In, in this story, Matthew is sort of introducing another side of Jesus' character. Uh, in scripture, we know that he's the Lamb of God, but he's also what? He's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But this side of Jesus is actually, I think, quite shocking to many modern Christians, probably not for the men of our church or the women. Um, it's shocking to many, and I would say probably in most churches, most mainstream denominations, because this kind of manliness has not been cultivated. It just hasn't, uh, especially not in the last 80 years, but we'll get to that. As I said, this is actually the second time that uh, Jesus confronted the corruption uh, in the court of the Gentiles uh, there on the temple grounds. The first time was actually in John 2, uh, which was very early in Jesus' ministry, and we're now just a few days before Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew 21. I like the one in John 2. I like both of them. Um, you can just see the money changers looking up from their tables and seeing Jesus a second time. (laughs) Oh, mercy, yeah. But it's in John 2 that we can see really the calculated nature of Jesus' actions. You know, it wasn't as if, you know, he entered the temple, saw what was going on, flipped his lid, and then went on a rampage. It's just not what happened. No, John tells us that after Jesus observed what was going on in the temple, he took the time to weave a whip of cords. So he had all of his faculties about him. He stopped, he observed, he thought it through, and then he gathered some smaller cords, which he wove together literally to make a scourge that would either intimidate people or inflict pain on the offenders. And with that whip, he drove out everyone from the court of the Gentiles who were doing business there and buying, and he drove out the animals with them, okay? And in the process, he was pouring out the coffers of money. He was flipping over the tables. So just imagine the scene. Doves are flying everywhere. Mothers are pulling their children to safety. People were frantically moving out of his way as he's swinging this whip around, yeah. Now, on the second occasion, Matthew doesn't mention a whip of cords, but he does say that Jesus still drove out those who bought and sold in the temple. So he was able the second time to do it without a whip. You see, if there was no whip in his hands the second time when he drove them out, it means that he alone was intimidating enough. His presence, his countenance, his intensity was sufficient. No weapon in his hands, and yet the people fled. Jesus meant business. His body language was sending a clear message. Now, how do you 
How do you force people out of a, a setting like that without being extremely intimidating? I'd like to know. Because I'm not the kind of guy that if some guy just runs around and looks intimidating that I'm going to get up and run away. It's just not in me to do that. So what kind of presence did Jesus have that people ran for their lives? Have you thought about that? And then, to put a whip in his hands, what did that look like? Well, that paints a a different picture of Jesus, doesn't it? An image that most in the church today would condemn if they witnessed it for themselves simply because Jesus wasn't being kind. He wasn't being loving or loving his neighbor as himself. I suppose that's what they might say. But that's what he did, and I think it was awesome. I think it was holy. I think it was righteous. And I hope that Jesus' actions here drive out any idea that he was only meek and mild. I hope it overturns our perception of Jesus as a fragile little man, because it should. You know, in Revelation 6, I like this. You know, people will call upon the mountains to have the rocks fall upon them to spare them from the wrath of the lamb. Wrath of the lamb? What kind of lamb are you afraid of? (laughs) Frightens people so dreadfully that they would rather die than face him. This This is the lamb. But he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah, who Genesis 49, 9 says that no one dares rouse him from his sleep when he returns from devouring the prey. Whew, that's good stuff. I don't make many movie references, probably because it's too cool. This is the lion depicted in C.S. Lewis, uh, his Lion, the Witch, and the Robe, uh, I don't, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, it's funny, I didn't even know that C.S. Lewis wrote children's books till I was in my late 20s. I had only read his philosophical works, and then I had heard about The Lion and the Witch and the Rotor, but I never knew who wrote it. So strange. So I had to play catch up and get with this whole thing. But there's that sobering dialogue between Lucy and the beaver, the beavers, regarding Aslan. You know, Lucy hears that Aslan is not a man, but he's a lion, and so she begins to inquire, and she says, is, is, he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie. And, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I like that. I've heard people complain about it, but I've read my Bible. In the allegory of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, Jesus is to evil its greatest danger, but he he is to his flock the refuge from all evil. I have to say, I love the scene where Aslan devours the head of the white witch and cleanses the land of her filth. There's there's just a, a justice in that, and I love it. I love the annihilation of evil. His holy hatred for evil called him to action. You know, men, by the grace of God, we should be a danger to evil, just as Jesus was when he found it in his father's house or when he found it anywhere. I mean, we should first, of course, be a danger to evil in ourselves so that we might be holy. 
We should be a danger to evil in our prayers because the, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, what does it do? It avails much. Some of you are King James in it out there, heard that. Availeth. We should be a danger to evil in the message we bring, which Paul says is, is mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments. A danger to evil in the answers we give, which can give hope and offer grace to the hearer. I mean, our deliberate course of action, just as Jesus' was in the temple, should be a danger to evil as we are intentional and bent on upholding the truth. Our steady consistency of men of God should be a danger to evil. Christian men should be a threat to evil. Right, ladies? Amen. And you know, the only proper response to evil is intolerance, intolerance. Like Jesus, we should observe carefully, we should plan meticulously, and when the time is right, we should execute without mercy. Uh, it's, I mean, currently, in, in the, the state of our culture, it's, it's too many men withdrawing, staying silent. They're backing down. But for the right reason in the proper context, Jesus got physical, he got intimidating, aggressive, he got fierce, he got fierce. So why was it the right reason and why did the context justify his actions? Well, it's interesting, historically we know that Annas, the high priest, uh, was essentially a religious mobster. He wasn't actually the high priest at this time, his son Caiaphas was, but Annas, behind the scenes, he called the shots. He was running the whole show, okay? And he'd created a system where he could profit uh, from those coming to the temple for mandatory worship at the Passover and the other feasts. This is what was happening. As we said, the Jews couldn't place Roman coins into the, the, the temple treasury, so they'd have to exchange the Roman coins for the Israeli shekel. But the exchange rate wasn't fair, okay? The money changers were charging the worshipers a fee to exchange the money they were giving, which meant less money for the treasury and more money for Annas. That's why Jesus is outraged. The worshipers also had to bring animals to the temple for sacrifice. Some would bring from their own flock, while others would purchase an animal when they arrived in Jerusalem. But Annas set it up so that a great deal of animals were rejected. If you brought your animal, oh, it's really not flawless. It's not worthy for the altar. You see, the animals were, were examined by the Levites to make sure that they could be offered on the altar. That's a good practice, I think. But the Levites, Annas' minions, were refusing the animals brought by the public. But no problem. We have animals for you to purchase. They're pre-approved, but they're mighty expensive. So they were making a big profit off of the worshipers. Money through them was flowing to Annas. This racket made it expensive, it made it difficult, inconvenient for the people of God to come to the temple for worship. Jesus rewarded that with righteous indignation. He gave it to them. Yeah, I love it. His anger was so clear that those in the temple were afraid of him. They were afraid for their physical safety. So for the right reason, Jesus was intimidating and he was aggressive. Now that would not fly in the church culture today where we've, we've spent generations now emasculating manhood and we've reduced the Christian disposition of masculinity to that of a cowering, soft-spoken, unopinionated mama's boy. That's what we want our men in our culture to be. 
We don't want world changers. We don't want that. The, the, the church today would prefer that this whole story was described differently. They would want it to read this way. Then Jesus went into the temple and took a ribbon and swirled it above his head to get everyone's attention. Or he, he grabbed the little bell and began to ring it. Excuse me, excuse me everyone, may I please have your attention? I have an announcement to make. Perhaps we've strayed a bit. I think God would prefer that we keep this place a safe place, welcoming to everyone so that no one's offended and everyone is accepted. Thank you for your attention. That's what our culture wants, especially from Christian men. And, and their desire to have things done that way in that particular context is sinful. It's a false portrayal of Jesus and his perspective on evil. And, and we, as God's people, we have to understand that Jesus' perspective on evil is the only correct view. And his response was holy. Men today have been tailored to cower and keep quiet in the face of evil and injustice, especially if they're a Christian, and even more so if they're a white Christian man. Yeah. And it doesn't just come from secular culture, it comes from the church. Whenever a man does stand up against evil or speaks out against false doctrine, he's told to sit down, to be quiet, and check his toxic masculinity. When good Christian men get in the face of evil, many in the church are quick to scrutinize. They nitpick every, I see it all over the internet. When some Christian man dares stand up and, and attack evil in our culture, they criticize everything that's said, how it was said, instead of encouraging those who would dare stand and fight. They're not saying anything against the evil that's out there. They just criticize those who are addressing it. Oh, he wasn't kind enough. He wasn't winsome enough, they say. He was insensitive. He was actually driving people away, which Jesus would never do, except when he does. Those who criticize often do so because they've been trained to use sympathy and compassion as their moral guide rather than the truth and righteousness, even though criticizing others contradicts their guiding principle of sympathy and compassion. They discriminate when it suits them. Others criticize those who dare stand against evil because they're too spineless to act contrary to evil. They're afraid of the response that they might get from evil, <clears throat> and so they try to silence the good. That's what the Pharisees are literally doing in the story. Shut up. We don't want the Romans to know. Be quiet. And so for that reason, invertebrate men are a danger to truth and they're a help to evil every time. Christian men have been reduced to complaining about evil in our world while ducking from the PC mob. Or those in the church who say, that's not very Christ-like. Would Jesus do that? You should love your neighbor as yourself, even while their neighbor is perpetrating evil on the weak, the ignorant, the helpless, the vulnerable. I believe our culture of mild men has contributed to the utter want of men in dangerous mission fields today. I believe that. Mild men are silent when it comes to the grave evils that haunt our communities and haunt the rest of the world. Because of them, evil is going unchecked. You know, where were the men in Jesus' day? You know, I guarantee that the men who came to the temple during the feast, they were complaining about the situation. But they never did anything. They, did, they didn't observe. They didn't make a, a calculated effort to confront the situation and then execute their plan. They just complained under their breath. Understand those men are part of the problem. Look, Jesus didn't just drive out those who were selling. 
He drove out those who were buying. I believe there's a rebuke here. He drove out the buyers because they were going along with it. They were driven out because they knew it was wrong to go along with their participation. It was helping perpetuate evil in the house of God. God always has demanded that men of faith stand up to evil. And when they don't, they'll be held to account. And everyone knew that what the high priest was doing was wrong. They knew it. They knew it was a racket. They knew that God's place should have been holy. They knew that God did everything to make worship something that people wanted to come and do. But they were silent. They did nothing, and that is wrong. James makes it clear. He says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. You know, being passive in the face of evil comes at a price, doesn't it? It does. Most men, I believe, have the desire to affect evil. But culturally and for other reasons, they lack the courage. They lack a godly example often. But someone has to stand up and confront evil. <clears throat> so really, it took the, the courage, it took the zeal of Jesus to inspire the apostles to preach the gospel in the face of hostility. So then they did that, and then they were arrested. You remember, they fled from the Romans prior to this. But then in the book of Acts, when they stood before the Sanhedrin as they were threatening them, what did they say? You do what you gotta do, but we're gonna obey God. And then they scourged them, and as they left, they rejoiced. Isn't that manly? They got beat, and they were happy about it because it was for the right reason. Jesus inspired them. His zeal proved to be invigorating and contagious. Fearless men inspire courage. You know, we need men who refuse to take orders from the culture. We need men who refuse to fit the mold and care only for the glory of God, especially when evil encroaches on what is pure and on what is holy. We need men who, for the right reason, will act righteously and not care about you know, cultural perception or public opinion when they take action. We need men who can evaluate a situation with wisdom and discernment, make calculated preparations, and execute with righteous measures. Doing the right thing, and understand this, doing the right thing in the right way is extremely important. Christian integrity demands it. But because of this you know, fake masculinity that's, that's been prescribed by our culture, men are afraid to do what's right, even if it can be done in the right way. Men need to be men as God designed them, as God commands them, as the example of Christ insists. When the occasion demands, and the condition of our world right now, it is, it is demanding it. They must stand between evil and the church, between evil and the truth, between evil and their family. They must for the weak and the vulnerable. Evil should trigger every man's righteous indignation. And whenever evil poses a danger, they must, like David, grab it by the beard to strike and kill it, knock it to the ground, and trample on it. I love it. Evil should stir our zeal for righteousness, not reduce us to passive complainers. The zeal of Christ in our current context, you know, of course, has to do with the holiness of the Father's house, which had, he says was reduced to a den of thieves, and the high priest was the ringleader. Today in the new covenant, you know, of course, the house of God is the church, not the building, but all believers in Christ. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, that God has ordained us to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. The church of the living God, we are the pillar and the ground of the truth. But sadly, 
what has been known as the church in Western culture is little more than a vehicle for compromise. That's, that represents the majority of all churches in Western culture, all of them, the majority. This should grieve every man of faith. And zeal for God's house should eat us up. It should stir us to take calculated action for the glory of God and for the preservation of his people. We need to look at the ills of our world with the conviction that only the gospel vocalized will affect. Now, I can hear it already. Pastor Ben, you need to be real careful how you say that. People could take you in the wrong way. People take my sermons in the wrong way all the time. People often hear what they want to hear anyway, no no matter how much time I spend saying what I mean and what I don't mean. I mean, the Catholic Church used Jesus' words in Luke 14, 23 to justify the Inquisition. If they're going to take him wrong, they're definitely going to take me wrong. So let me say what I mean, and if you have any questions, I would love to answer them after service. We need a masculine revolution. Humble men and fathers who love God above all else. Love their wives as they love themselves, who train their children in the admonition of the Lord, who are the best employees at work, who are strong in love, gentle and wise in their leadership, firm on their stance for righteousness, who who hate evil and will stare it in the face with unwavering resolve. We need men that the next generation can respect and look up to. We need men who love God's word and believe every word of it who fearlessly preach the gospel and live according to its precepts. Men who conduct themselves with a good conscience before God, who will not be ashamed when Christ appears, but will bow their knee in humble reverence. We need men who admire Jesus above all and walk in step with him. We don't need any more men who cower to power, who compromise with evil, who bow the knee to Baal. We don't need any more men who are yes men, who yield to the dictates of our culture, who wink at, immorality of the, wink at the immorality of the day. We don't need men who enjoy being the victim or support those who do. We don't need any more men who are embarrassed by their faith. We don't need any men that make apologies for it. We don't need any more men who use sympathy as their moral guide. We need more men like the men of Calvary Chapel Centralia. <laughs> I love being in this environment so many men in this congregation who are just, just display a robust, godly manhood, who stand up for truth, who love their wives and their families, they're hard workers. And I just think, with a group like this, we could make a calculated effort, couldn't we? To address the ills of our immediate community. We've got what it takes here. God would use it. I'm so thankful. Just a great example. Yeah. So keep it up. Let's finish the section because it it further demonstrates real manhood. Notice this. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. What? After that? And he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, they saw wonderful things. And the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. You mean after that that violent display of zeal that the people were drawn to him and children were praising him? Apparently. Because you know what happens is people are drawn to courageous men. 
They follow people of courage, men of strength and conviction. You know, Jesus, he executed in the court of the Gentiles what every man wished he had the courage to do. He gained their respect. But of course, whatever Jesus did wasn't without criticism from the hypocrites, the cowards. You know, these guys should have been the ones calling out the high priest for his criminal enterprise, but instead they found an occasion to be indignant with this false piety. They should have also been the ones pointing the people to Jesus. They should have been the ones, and they get rebuked for that. But they're too busy being jealous and envious of Jesus. They're too busy being afraid of what their peers might think and what the Romans might say. And so when they saw the wonderful things that Jesus was doing, which they weren't able to do, and when they heard the children praising him, they were indignant and they were critical. And so in order to save their own face, their own reputation, they confront Jesus. <clears throat> and he said, and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Now understand, every time Jesus said to them, have you not read? It just irked them, just irked these guys. These were the scholars. These were the experts in God's word. How dare he insinuate they didn't possess a superior knowledge of the scriptures? So it was indeed a jab on Jesus's part. I know it's not very sensitive. He was holding them accountable for their ignorance and their unbelief. It wasn't very winsome. I love it when people criticize others for being critical or they use sarcasm to slam those who are sarcastic. We become exactly what we say we don't like. But anyway, the rest of the passage is Jesus quoting from Psalm 8, because of your enemies is what follows, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. He didn't actually quote the whole verse. So the children have perfected praise because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. The chapter, Psalm, <clears throat> excuse me, Psalm 8, the chapter is talking about the excellency of God, and for that reason, babes and nursing infants praise him in order to silence the enemies. So Jesus applies the psalm to himself. He is the God who infants praise, exalting his excellence. Why? To silence his enemies. <laughs> That's so great. So Jesus clearly rebukes them as his enemies, for though they were the experts in God's word, they lacked the discernment of babies. Good job, guys. So he drops the mic, he walks away. Yep. He leaves them insulted, for which they will plan his death. It says, in leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Nothing left to say, class was dismissed. So Jesus went back to Bethany to stay with his friends. The man had put in a full day's work and he earned his rest. Go ahead and stand up and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that you were always the man of the moment. If someone needed a tender touch, you were there for that. If someone needed rebuked, you were good for it. If people needed loved, if people needed compassion, <clears throat> you were broken inside for them. And Lord, when evil stood between, or rather was a perpetrator, Lord, you were the man. Lord, we need, we need more men. Our world desperately needs 
good, godly men who would walk in the steps of Christ. Lord, I'm so thankful again for the men of Calvary Chapel, an example to me, one that I can point my kids to. They're raising other men that we can all point our daughters to. Lord, I pray that the, the courageousness of men here would, would just draw, Lord, men of our community. I've known too many men are totally unattracted to Christianity because they view Christ as some kind of wimp. But Lord, you are the man. You are a real man. Lord, help us to exude that to our wives, Lord, our kids, our community. Help us to be faithful in the things of the word, to be men of the word, to be preachers of the gospel. And Lord, like you, that whatever the occasion demanded, we could, we could be the man for the moment. Lord, we're grateful. We thank you. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Lord bless you guys.